morning, everyone. It's good to see you on a sunny Me too. There's calling out that may not be vocalized. 
could be in your heart a sense of wanting to call out, and we are certainly in a time where it's needed to call out, but also to call in and to call up. To call in and to call up. I like how Puerto Rican pastor Carlos Rodriguez puts it. Just a little letter. Dear church, dismount your high horse, abandon your throne, reject your privilege, time to serve, to die and resurrect, to love the other truthfully, the way of Christ is waiting. So in this sermon, there's no warm-up slogan stories. We're just diving in, okay? The way of Christ is waiting, Rodriguez says. So what is then, what is the way? What's the essence of the way? What's, what's the core of the way of Christ? And what are the add-ons, the accoutrements, the accessories, the stuff that gets piled on that is an essence, that's extra? How do we differentiate rightly between those two? Tell me, what is the essence? And in many ways, artisan is a project seeking for the last nine years, trying to find an answer to that. Because it's either I walk away or we're done, like so many of my friends have done. Either that's going to happen, or the other option is just trying to, I don't know, reclaim the good old days. Not interested in that. Is there a third way? What is the essence? That's the question. And that's the very reason the creeds were created. To help find essence in a time where there's all kinds of clutter and all kinds of confusion. We need a fresh excavation of what's essence and what's extra. And part of the reason I'm so passionate about this is how I've been shaped uh, in, in the music of my youth. Okay, I grew up on this. This is glam kind of hair metal. This may be a hard transition for when we're talking about patriarchy. But that bike back to the other side, going from on this, which all throughout the 80s was just more and more excess, more and more reverb, more and much processing. There's no way a snare drum should ever sound like it did like in 89, just this canyon. Uh, there's no reason guitar solos needed to be that long. So it was, it was, a, it was a season of excess, excess, and I'm, I'm about to get called out. Hopefully called in and up too. But, so, so growing up, this time of excess, and then I remember the first time hearing this band on the radio. Next slide. And, which is an unbelievably happy day for all of and Kurt's holding a plexicle. But this, this whole movement of grunge was all about stripping away the veneer, trying to get back to essence and core. And so whatever, whatever you need to believe that that's possible, this is what helps me know that this is possible, <laughs> experiencing that shift. Yeah, it is possible to get back to essence. This may not be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Thank you for uh, this moment, for this day. Thank you that uh, there is uh, such things as your word and your spirit that are living and active and available. Give counsel, give guidance, help separate truth from error, to um, bring comfort and disruption. So, congregation, and whatever the word is that we most need to hear collectively and individually, we trust you to bring a word. In Jesus' name. So, the creed is, is an attempt at essence and at decluttering. And last week, we talked about how perhaps the earliest creed that we have is Jesus is Lord. And so anyone who made this, made this declaration uh, was regarded as a Christian. For someone to confess that Jesus is Lord, he's emperor, uh, a declaration ah. that Jesus is the leader of my life, he's prime minister, his boss, master, that in fact meant he's not only Lord of my life, but the whole world. Huge, huge countercultural statement. So that was maybe the earliest creed, but then as time went on, it became necessary to unpack what that means. And so the Apostles' Creed was not the only creed to come into existence in the early church. Again, we saw, we see little early snippets of it in the 2nd and 3rd century. And it's more or less there by the 4th 
Um, all Christian traditions recognize this, it, its authority, its importance. And, and to investigate the Apostles' Creed really is to investigate essence. So let's look at this creed. If you'd like, yeah, we should move on. Uh, if you'd like to uh, make this con your confession this morning, you're invited to do so. If you'd like to observe and listen, uh, feel free. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, who descended to the Scripture, Ephesians 4, if you have a chair Bible, let's go there. We've got the creed, this idea of essence in the background this morning, questions of tradition, whose tradition, what's the point of examining this tradition. Let's turn to Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11. In this chapter, Paul is has made a big shift in, in chapter 4 of starting to talk of what it means to be in the church, what makes church uh, happen. And so verse 11, he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service. So we're, we're, we're looking for how this is a received faith. We're looking for how this moves. So first of all, Christ himself gifted empower people to equip and empower other people. That's the movement. To be equipped for works of service, verse 12, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Uh, this common image of what the church is, but the idea of the church being Jesus' living, moving body. And so the point is that that body gets built up. And as we read this, if you start thinking gym or bodybuilding, I think it's appropriate so that the body may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The vision is towards a maturity, a fullness. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Then, then you'll be rooted, you'll be established, you'll have strength, it'll be harder to push you over. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I love this vision that Paul's laying out here. This is an embodied vision of imagining what we're a part of. It's an, a picture of a body. It's an embodied vision, a, a robust, there's a muscular faith here. There's a sense of being interconnected. The, the, the ligaments are working and are attached. And, and, and there's a vision towards maturity and fullness being built up in love. That's, that's the point, being strong and established in love. Now, um, at least as far as I've found, in most gyms, I don't go to a ton, but I do go to some, and sometimes even traveling, so I've found this to be true in other provinces. In most gyms, not every, but most, there is a man in that gym who is working out and who is shaped like an upside-down pear with two toothpicks up its bottom. Okay? You know this man? You take a pear, right? you turn it upside-down. It's really important to get this visual. You turn it upside-down, and then two toothpicks in the bottom. Okay? 
And, and, and so there's, there's this man in the gym who looks like that, and what's he, what has he done? He's all chest, and some abs, and a lot of arms. And he just doesn't like doing his legs. And so for this reason, this man will wear pants. And he's super hot, he's sweating to death, but he's wearing gym pants because he knows that he's a pair turned upside down between the toothpicks up the bottom. And even though he's wearing pants, we still know what he ultimately knows, that he's an asymmetrical man. And this is also what we know. He's weaker than he thinks he is. And we know that even though he could bench press 400 pounds, probably my 12-year-old son, Elijah, could shove him over. Because why? Because he's got no base, right? He has no roots. He's not been built up. He, th this is, this is where, <laughs> this is where um, the power of the human body is birthed. Okay, glutes, hands, hips. Then we just finish the sermon off. <laughs> All the power, the ability to stand and stay rooted not be knocked over, as Ephesians 4 is talking about. All of that comes from a certain kind of sy symmetry that means you're not just all upper body. It, it means that you can be doing bench flies all day, but at some point you're going to need to blow these puppies up. That's how we talk. Blow, blow those legs up, baby, or you're in trouble. Okay? And the same thing happens to us all, all the time spiritually. Got pet doctrines, favorite beliefs, go-to verses, hobby horses. I've got them. You've heard them. You've heard a lot of my hobby horses. Got preferences, go-to passages. And so then we encounter something like the creed. Like, ah, I'm just not feeling it. As we go through the creed, I guarantee there are going to be moments where what you encounter is going to feel like a leg day. Okay, keep going, Nelson. Tell me about it. <laughs> That's how you like press. <laughs> or, or they try to uh, come to the week when we look at the Holy Catholic Church, the, the Universal Church. That may feel like a late day, but it's important. Why? Because the goal is fullness, being mature, being built up. And I wonder if some of the most heavy lifting in the entire creed is what we're going to look at today. And it's just the words to begin the whole thing off. And, and those words are, I believe. This may be the hardest part of the Apostles' Creed, those two little words, I believe. So what did it mean to say those two words? What might it mean for us to say those two words? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. I believe. First, who is the I? Who is the voice that's speaking in the Apostles' Creed? I'm trying to make a big point to, in order to even approach the creed um, because it's so otherworldly and countercultural to us. But the key point is that Christianity is a received faith. We don't get to make it up. We receive it. We've got to figure out what to make of it, but we don't make it up. Jude says, contend for the faith which was for all handed down to the saints. So, we're not free to invent or invent or create faith. Faith has been handed down to us, entrusted to us. Our task then is to figure out what it will look like to carry it forward in our time, how to engage our time with this ancient faith and faithfully pass it on to promote right, and educate and win. That's what we're working on right now. Figure out how do we receive it, how we work it out in our time, and then how will we pass it off to Daniel and Sarah? Okay. So one author says, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, it was made possible by the Christian religion preserving the story of the gospel. There's a little snark there. So it's not like, you don't get to make it up that I've got a, a relationship with Jesus, just and I have no need for religion or the past or church history. No, how did you get that religion? Or how did you get that relationship? It was handed down to you through people. So first of all, that I, the I in the creed, is the church gathered across time and space. It's, it's the big community. It's 
of Christ. So that large I means being part of the tradition. It means standing in a long line of women and men who have gone before you following Jesus. It means having ancestors and elders. Chesterton puts it, he says, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of who, those who merely happen to be walking about. So it means getting to stand in a longer, stronger, bigger eye than my little lowercase eye. Now, one of the things I've, I've noticed in being a pastor is you get to do uh, weddings. I've had the privilege, it's an enormous privilege of getting to do weddings. And I've married some of uh, y'all, and so what I'm about to say, I'm not throwing any shade at, at your wedding. But I've noticed a trend, and I think it's an interesting trend uh, that reveals something about our cultural moment. And that's the trend around wedding vows. And the trend is specifically uh, writing one's own wedding vows. And the common idea is, I don't want to use words that everyone else has used or is currently using. I need unique vows that will express my unique feelings. I'm skeptical about the past or anything that's been handed down to me. And so the assumption is the truest thing I could say, and I want it to be true in this moment. The truest thing I could possibly say is something that I've made up myself. Which is, is very uh, backwards to most generations before us. The truest thing I could say would be something that's well tested. It's stood the test of time that my parents and my grandparents once said. That would be the truest thing. Now, what I often encourage couples to do is that when you write your own vows, often those, they're not even vows because there's no promises in them. They're beautiful language, telling your story and your history, but there's no vow or promise. So take those words, use them as words of intent, and then find vows that make promises. So you can still customize, right? Have your own words in there, but make sure you also have vows in your wedding ceremony. This, I think, is part of why the creed is so hard, because to confess it means I'm not just expressing my own views, my priorities, my hot takes, joining into a voice, a communal voice that calls out across the centuries, a voice that is more diverse than the community I'm a part of, a voice that is indeed from every tribe and tongue. So by confessing the creed, I gain some critical distance from my moment, from the flavor of the day, and from even my preferences. So the I believe, the I, first of all, is the body of Christ that stretches out across time. There's a summer where I had an internship as a worship leader, work, leading worship at a really large church, multiple services, like lots of tech. Uh, it was a lot of work. And this particular church, beautiful people, loved that summer. Uh, worship consisted mostly of songs, sermon and announcements. That was the three liturgical elements. And so I tried introducing things like reading scripture together, up so we have it up on the slide, or reading it responsibly, or having a call to worship, these kinds of things. And what I'd often say beforehand is, is saying, you know, let's, let's rise and let's confess our faith together. If something like, if, if you're a person who at this moment feels like you have real low ebb of faith or no faith, just listen. Listen to those around you, and maybe borrow some of their faith. And if you're a person who feels really full right now, you speak extra loud. Say it a, lo say it a little loud for those of us who aren't really there, or not yet believing. Every time, someone would come up afterwards and say, thank you for saying that. Why? Because they're used to a worship that was so individual, that it was just me singing to God. And there was very little horizontal. And so... The, the opportunity to stand into a larger eye than my little eye, even in, a, in, a, in our moment, is, is remarkable. You get to lend and borrow faith and say, you know, I don't, I actually, I'd probably say I'm agnostic. I don't know if I trust God, but I trust Cantor. I trust Van Gogh. 
Paul writing he says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, so a few things. Notice the text does not say no. If you declare with your mouth and know in your heart, it says believe. Just notice that. So why is that important? It's important because they're not the same thing. The word for belief or faith in the, in the noun form is pistis. Okay? It's fairly easy to remember, potentially. So pistis and the verb form is pisteuo. Basically, this whole sermon is just all I've got for you this morning is that second is the verb form, which I think there's so much there. Just ask the question, what would, what would shift in my imagination if I took up the verb and then just didn't just see the word in its noun form? So believe into. Often when we hear the word belief, we think opinion or mental assent. But believing into, whether that's uh, I don't know, a doctor, or a car, or a patent medicine partner, believing into is a matter of treating the person or the thing as trustworthy and committing yourself to it or them. So the opening of the creed, I believe in God, if we were to render that Greek phrase as it is, would be to say, I am believing into God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I am believing into. I think one of the other problems of this word belief and faith is tricky is because we need some uh, nuancing and some uh, differentiating between things like this. Faith, doubt, skepticism, cynicism, certainty, and trust. So really quickly, we could say, we just looked at what faith is, believing, it means to believe into. Doubt, we could say is misgivings, perhaps, about truth claims, misgivings uh, about claims made by faith. May, doubt leans, it's not a settled conviction. Doubt actually animates faith. Doubt keeps faith an inquiry. Or as Frederick Buechner says, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps it animated. It keeps the, the quest going. It prevents a rival. 
So faith and doubt, many have said, are, are a two-sided coin. Those are not opposite things. I think parsing out what skepticism and skepticism is really helpful. It's a powerful methodology, for sure, in philosophy and the sciences, to verify through the claims. Uh, skepticism can also be really rooted in fear of being taken in and being fooled. It's, it's a guarding. On, on, a, on a negative side, skepticism can be risk averse. Cynicism, then, is, is a skepticism on steroids. Or it's the insistence that all truth claims, all value claims, are unprovable and therefore likely false. It's kind of a bah humbug approach. And so often, cynical people are former idealists, those who have had high hopes, and those hopes have been crushed. They're disappointed in life, in themselves, in God, in the church. And so cynicism often is the moment of disappointed hope. I like how Daniel Taylor kind of differentiated from all this. If I doubt and yet still commit, then I have faith. My definition of faith is as follows. Faith is believing and committing to something despite uncertainty. Christian faith is believing and committing to living out the core claims of Christianity despite uncertainty. It is not irrational to commit to something about which one is uncertain. It is irrational to commit only to things in life which are certain, since those things are just a small slice of life and do not include that which is most important. There is no way to enter into a relationship whether that's a dating one or um, I'm totally blind. What happens often before marriage? Engaged? Yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way to enter into an engagement or marriage with certainty. It's, it's impossible. You cannot know everything there is to know. You cannot verify 100% that this is going to work out. They're the right one, and you're the right one. The most important things in life get entered into through trust, not certainty. So, just to recap, I believe equals something like I am believing into, or I'm actively trusting or relying on, or I'm living in a relation of commitment toward. I believe. I believe does not mean I know, or I'm completely certain. I'm turning a blind eye to reasonable, verified facts in order to remain religious. If you remember last week, we looked at the roots of the creed, and, and I want to return to those because the roots really matter. The roots of the creed were baptismal. Right? We looked at uh, this third century uh, document on the apostolic tradition by Hippolytus. And we noticed how the, the baptism uh, movements are a little bit different. It, it, it meant being stripped of your accessories and jewelry and derobing, going into the waters naked. And so when a Christian would go into the waters, no, you don't have to write down that beautiful, thank you. When the, when the Christian goes into the waters, it's an image of new life. Stripped, naked, no accessories, just as I am, descending into the water, exposed to the elements, and in a way, born into a new humanity and a new family. And the cry is, I believe. It's, like a, it's a birth cry. It's like a baby being born. It's, it's primal. It's desperate. I believe. It's a statement of trust. It's God or nothing. I come naked to these waters and either Christ is going to raise me in newness of life or there's nothing else for me. I believe. So this primal creed is born in a primal cry. Which, at least for me, changes how I might think of saying this. The only way to say this is if I had a, like a very posh British accent. Right? Well, I do believe. All certainty and kind of a bit of stress. Not that that's what British people are all about. But the sense of being all together. I say the creed when I'm sure and when I'm certain and, and when I've arrived. That's very different than the creed being me in my weakest, most desperate, most vulnerable place. There's a primal cry. 
I am believing into God. That, that could be six months. That could be even your next 20 years. I am believing into God. And maybe that may be the, the center of the dream for you. Or I am believing into God, the Father. Yeah, that's going to take some work. I am believing into God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Okay, if I'm believing into that, then that changes everything in terms of my ethics towards climate and environmental stewardship. I'm believing into a creator. I believe. I am actively learning how to trust. I am hesitantly yet resiliently learning how to rely on the Holy Spirit. I am believing in Him. I think this is why the creed is so hard, especially for people like us. Trust does not come easy. Trust has been broken. In fact, statements of trust make it all the more feel like a relic. Like it would have been easier to say this kind of trust back then. It's harder now. It's harder to give myself to something outside of myself. But what the creed ultimately, the, the way in, shows us that life is founded on trust. So in North Africa, fourth century, there's Bishop Augustine. And Augustine had this argument about the nature of trust. And uh, he posed this question to people. He said, how do you know who your father is? And they would say, were you there at your conception? Strange. Strange to think about. Do you have absolute personal evidence? Do you have certainty? Or do you have a group of people, a crowd who can verify who your father truly is? No, you don't, Augustine would say. You only have one person who can verify who your father is, and that's your mother. Now, give Augustine a little slack here. This is well before DNA testing, you know, paternity tests. And there's all kinds of ways this breaks down. But his point was that one of the most important things about you is something that you have to take from trust. You have to receive it from someone else. Augustine's point is that there are certain things that we need to live out of trust in order to understand who is Jesus. Life begins as an act of trust. And so Augustine would, would famously have said this, if you can't understand, Believe, and then you'll understand. Which maybe sounds kind of like Yoda, or maybe just uh, kind of confusing, but if you can't understand, believe, and then you'll understand. So what is he saying? Pretend? If you can't understand, pretend. If, if you can't understand, blind leap. If you can't understand, just be an idiot and go along with the herd. No. We've just learned the root of it is to believe into. If you can't understand, what water is like to be immersed in. Get into it. If you cannot understand green Thai curry, let's go with beef. If you can't understand that, taste it. I had a, I had a profoundly spiritual experience with taquitos this week. <laughs> I, I bought taquitos for my kids. And I fed them taquitos because I'm a dad who cares. <laughs> I was so excited about these taquitos. We never have taquitos. But my youngest son was not interested. Never had taquitos. Didn't want them. I'm trying to explain to him, no, brother. Taquitos like a taco. If you take out any of the healthy stuff, you roll it up, and then you deep fry it. It's just cheese and meat and deep fry it. And these are the double deep fried. They're extra crispy. And he, he was, wasn't having it. And so I'm appealing to anything to try and get him to believe that a taquito is good. I've got the Al Monterey fog. Look, look at the picture. Look, the cheese coming out the end of it. Look at the taquito. I'm pulling in his older siblings. Tell him, tell him about the taquito. So I'm just like, oh, Ari, they're amazing. They're so good. I'm going to have like four of them. Ari's not having the taquito. I'm, but I'm chopping him up. I'm demonstrating how to eat a taquito. I, I, you know, trying to explain the dorpin, dopamine, what this cheese does. I just can't, I can't explain him into taquito. 
so finally he takes a bite. I think when it comes down to it, we're all believers. We're all believing in something. In this moment, Ari believed. He goes, I'll work my time, they're gross, they're bad. And so he was believing one belief, and he ended up trading that belief in for another. And it changed his trajectory. Okay? So, let's move on from taquitos. I believe is an invitation to, in an ongoing way, just find new places to do the trading. To trade in the little and the limiting belief for the larger and expansive belief. That's, that's what we're talking about. In biblical language, it's called repentant, repent and believe. It's about making the trade. Trading the little limiting belief. We all have a creed. We're all living off of what we ultimately believe to be true. Trading that in for the larger belief. So what are the limiting beliefs in this room? Probably there's thousands. Right? And they're hard to see often. But when we examine the fruit of our life, we may say, you know what, one of the limiting beliefs I hold is that life isn't really worth living without alcohol. That there's no rest or fun without alcohol, and therefore I need it. It's a little limiting belief, and so that's where I'm going to find it. A trade might be to say, actually, that might be a little belief. That could be a larger belief that there's rest found in God. It could be that, as Psalm 63 says, your love is better than life. Your love satisfies. I am satisfied as with the richest of It could be a limiting belief that I am ultimately alone and abandoned. I always feel that way. I always feel outside. And I always make sure to put myself outside. Maybe a limiting belief causes all kinds of hesitation and disconnection. There's the possibility to repent and believe a larger belief that the creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. To unpack that means I believe in the counselor, the friend, the advocate. I believe in the one who lives on the inside of me and does not. I believe that there's a possibility to fellowship with God in real time. There may be a limiting belief that it's just, at the end of the day, it's ultimately up to me. It's ultimately up to me. And then just kind of reading through the Psalms and To, to grab hold of a belief that God is always at work even when I don't see him. I was in a spiritual direction uh, meeting where I was receiving direction and my director's house is getting renovated and so all throughout our session there was clanging of hammers and saws going off and I loved the music because it was a reminder the whole time that God's at work, Lance. God's at work. You don't see it. You don't know who's doing it. You just hear the buzz of the saw. Unless the Lord builds the house, just striving, spinning the wheels. See, we immediately see with the creed that the invitation is ongoing and endless. What kind of limiting beliefs can I trade in today? What, 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 what kind of things might I find my way into? So, as we close, John 20 says this writer of the Gospels wrapping up all these stories about Jesus and says in verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe, that you may believe into that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole point. Learning how to believe into and the trade-off then is increased life, increased freedom, increased movement in your own life. I know this seems really basic, but that's the title of the series. And then we never graduate from this, getting the trading, to evaluate what are my beliefs. And I wanted to let you know that one of the great privileges of getting to be a pastor is getting to witness 
some of you in the midst of choosing the trade. It's just an enormous privilege to get to watch people trade the little unlimited beliefs for the larger, truer one. It's just such an honor. I want to let you know, too, that whenever we're doing that, whenever in the midst of it, it never seems like we're doing anything significant. In fact, we often feel like we're losing. But it, it's like in the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is facing the Balrog and says, Gandalf is glimmering in the gloom. I just want to say to those of you who are in the, right now where faith and trust in God is really being tested, I just want to say that you are glimmering in the gloom. You are glimmering. It, it, you probably can't see the glimmer. But those of us, are your friends, those of us who get the privilege of being near your light, those of us who may be in your family, we're watching and we're witnessing your glimmer. We say, I believe, we're saying things like, I'm not certain, but I'm believing in you. We're saying, okay, this will be my story. We're saying, I believe, help my unbelief. It's not really a question of what or who I'm believing into. No, yeah, but who and what am I believing into? Sorry, not a question of if, but what and who. It's not a question of if I have a creed, but what? What's the creed? What's, what's the ground of my being? And it's not the quality of your trust, but what your trust is in. So if your trust is really weathered and battered and really small, that's okay. Because it's all about what's, what it's in. So I'm going to close here with a little confession. I, I don't know, I, I'm assuming you're allowed to have hard weeks, so I'm going to take that for myself as well. I had a hard week preaching about faith and belief. And I've come at this sermon about 12 different ways. And I uh, was trying to figure out how not to come this morning. Um, and didn't have a sermon going to bed last night. And turned in and read these words. And so I want to read these words are a huge gift to me, and I hope they're a gift to you as you, let's just take a few moments to contemplate where the battle of trust is happening in real time. Take a few moments to consider if we want to swap creeds maybe, or make the trade in of a limiting and little belief for a larger one. So take a few moments, and I'm going to read Psalm 25, and the band can come, and we continue then doing the work considering where we're being invited to place our trust. Take a few moments and hear Psalm 25. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. Teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love. There from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. 
Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity. And their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies, how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. God, there's so many reasons not to trust, not to believe. And they come easy and they come fast. And they're very real. So for those of us who are in real time working this out, we have very little strut left. Where most of the certainty and certitude has evaporated, but yet there still lives a cry, have mercy on us, help us. Would you repair broken trust? Would you create new capacity to trust? Thank you just for these words. In you, Lord, I put my trust. Would you lead us, show us what that would look like? Thank you.